Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Halpern Radio Show. I am your host, Mike Halpern. Today, I have with me Adam Kokesh, who is running for president of the United States of America. Adam will be talking about libertarianism, central banking, property rights, the Constitution, 2020 primary, and more. Adam's website is thefreedomline.com. His podcast is Adam versus the man. Without further ado, Adam Kokesh. Well, Michael, I appreciate you having me on, especially as a Libertarian Party presidential candidate coming into the home stretch of our primary right now. Anytime I have to introduce myself as a presidential candidate, I throw up in my mouth a little bit. You really have to be some kind of psychopath to want to be president of the United States, even a benign one who thinks you can use this power that nobody should have over other human beings for good because it is inherently corrupting and inherently corrupt. As a political institution, the federal government right now, we'd be better off without it. And that's why my platform is localization. It's true that I'm technically running for president. It's more accurate to say that I'm running to turn the federal election into a referendum on whether or not the government should be allowed to exist at all. My platform is to take the federal government through a peaceful, orderly, responsible bankruptcy process that leaves us with 50 independent states and up to 562 sovereign native nations in the first step of localization. That is to get government down to the community level where it's transparent, accountable, voluntary. And the only systems that you would be a part of are ones that you choose to be in based on your values set up to meet your needs. I'm a Marine Corps combat veteran. I enlisted before I graduated from high school in the delayed entry program, volunteered to go to Iraq in 2004. That's really what set me on my journey to pull the thread to unravel the sweater of statism, this covering of propaganda and lies that keeps us from seeing the truth about what government is. My experience as the violent front of government, the actual trigger puller on the front lines, seeing the lies that led me to watch fellow Marines die in combat really motivated me. When I got back, I joined Iraq Veterans Against the War. I should say when I got out of the Marines, if the American people knew what I knew or knew my story, they wouldn't be dying. After that, I was asked to run for Congress as a Republican by Ron Paul. I couldn't shut up when the race was over. I got a radio show, and that was the start of Adam versus the Man. Right when that was about to get canceled, because I wasn't selling ads, it got picked up as a TV show on Russia Today. So yeah, I was part of the Russian government's propaganda effort to poke the American government in the eye. Got canceled after four months for being fairly critical of Putin on my show. Then went online, independent, focused on my YouTube channel, got it up to 80 million views. Now I have what some say is the most shadow banned channel on YouTube. I've been a civil disobedience activist in one kind or another for the entire time since I was getting out of the Marines. Now I'm building my homestead. I've got 10 acres in the mountains in Arizona near Flagstaff. I'm living my American dream. I want everybody to have this. What we have here at the Garden of Freedom. We are a sovereign unit. We live in peace and in harmony in a way that is in line with libertarian values that we want to spread. We want to wake people up. To me, this has been 
my life's work to share this unique understanding of ethics. Libertarianism is not really a political philosophy. It's an ethical philosophy. It's just ethics applied to politics, to stand up to injustice, to continue the spirit in which I serve, to fight for a free world, or as the Libertarian Party statement of principle says, nothing less than a world set free in our lifetimes. The Constitution is the source of the illegitimate authority of the federal government. Now, I'm a constitutionalist in the truest sense of the word, that I believe if you come together as a society to form a system of authority or government or mutual management in any form whatsoever, that it should have a clear charter document. It should have a constitution that lays out the principles as a contract. But as a legitimate social contract, you have to be able to opt out. You can't force contracts on people. Then they're not contracts. They're just demands. In that sense, the Articles of Confederation that we had before the current constitution were the lawful constitution. They were a voluntary one. The colonies agreed to be a part of, by choice, individual freedom was respected at that point, except, of course, in the slave trade and so many other violent ways that we've moved past for the overall better. We don't have to fight a revolution violently to have the revolution of our generation. We can do it peacefully. The constitution that we live under now is a counter-revolution. I make a big, important distinction between the founders who said, screw you to King George, we're not going to be part of your empire anymore, and the framers who screwed it up by creating a new strong central authority under the current constitution, which encoded in law a standing army that most of the founders were against, taxation, intellectual property, slavery, all of these things that are illegitimate. Oh, and of course, the central bank, which was arguably the point of the whole thing, to impose a currency on the new country and be able to rip everybody off by printing money. The way they got away with this is by using the amendments, the Bill of Rights, as an excuse, like, oh, just give us this power. We promise we won't abuse it. Look, we even wrote down your rights. It's really twisted to see people confused about this, going, what do you think of our Second Amendment rights? You don't have Second Amendment rights. You have human rights. The Second Amendment describes one aspect of them. The very acknowledgement of the document as being the source of those rights is to turn them into privileges that can be taken away. And that's where we are with the current status quo. What do I think about the Second Amendment? I think it's not respected by the constitutional government that we have today. Anyhow, this is a God-given right, not a constitutional right. Historically, it was a bad excuse that was used by people who wanted to create more authority in the face of freedom. In terms of current policy, gun rights, you have an absolute right as an individual on your own property, in your own home, to defend yourself how you see fit. You have a right to own property. People think of libertarianism as pro-gun. In a sense it is, but not really. At a deeper level, it's pro-private property. You have a right to own a piece of metal in whatever shape you want. I don't have a right, and neither does society have a right, to come onto your land against your will or into your home without your permission and say, we're going to control what kind of property you own and say you can't own a piece of metal in a particular shape because we don't like that shape. This is the absolute pro-gun position. But it also provides for the mechanisms for people who want to live in gun-free communities to do that. You can form voluntary associations. You can come together and say, if you want to opt out, if you don't want your property to be a part of this collective, that's fine. But if you're here or you're on my property, guns are not allowed here. I'm only going to go to stores. I'm only going to go to shopping malls. 
where guns aren't allowed. You have the right to do that. And to whatever extent that people want that, they should have the right to create those spaces and those institutions. But you can't force your policy pro-gun or anti-gun or neutral on somebody else on their own property or in someone else's community where people want to live in a way different from how you want to live. Now, the third answer here in terms of practical policy, as much as I am pro-gun in the present, I'm actually in a way kind of anti-gun for the future. I think I have pretty good credentials to speak on this, Michael, as you know, from my firearms, civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. The idea that a gun is an essential self-defense tool with current technology is true. If you want to defend yourself, if you want to be able to fight back against an assailant, we really don't have any technology today better than a gun. It's actually very unfortunate that government has suppressed people's natural ability or desire for self-defense mechanisms, that we don't have better non-lethal technology. I carry pepper spray. I know that in an attack or a fight or an assault, I'd rather have pepper spray than a taser. I think if you're carrying a gun, you should also carry something that allows you to escalate force without going directly to that deadly force. When you have a taser that you can shoot someone in the pinky with as accurately, mechanically, functionally as a firearm and take them out, like if you shoot someone in the pinky toe with a gun, you're just going to really piss them off. If you shoot them with a phaser set to stun, so to speak, to borrow the Star Trek terminology, you can take them out and preserve the value of their body and their life as much as possible. That's even more important. Libertarianism isn't just about your rights. It's about how do we maximize value for everyone. Love and respect for your fellow human beings. Acknowledging the divinity of the individual human soul that rests within all of us, that is the seed of our rights, whether you believe they're natural rights or God-given rights. It is in your independent consciousness, your humanity. Libertarians, as a movement, we have been playing their game for far too long. Their game is argue issue by issue and confuse ethics with aesthetics. What I mean by that is that culturally, organizationally, and lifestyle-wise, we all have different preferences for what we want our community to look like. Some of us want, like me, I want my 10 acres respected. I want to live in a natural dispersed homesteading community. As long as my 10 acres are respected, three miles of private dirt road is nice. And I like my community. Some people want to live in some other form. If they get that voluntarily, they have a different community. Who am I to say that they can't or shouldn't live that way? When we play their game, we forget that and we impose our preferences without the ethics and give the government its assumption that we all need to be forced into centralized systems that force one-size-fits-all solutions on everybody that obviously aren't working. I've been quoting Larry Sharp a lot lately. He said, a libertarian is someone who believes you can be as liberal or as conservative as you want as long as you don't force it on anybody. That's the power that localization has in terms of connecting with people as a matter of policy. When someone asks me as a candidate, are you pro-gun or anti-gun, I can give them a very thoughtful, nuanced answer in a soundbite still that says, it's whatever you want in your community. If you come together with people who say you want to live in a gun-free zone, you can live in a gun-free zone. 
you set the policy on your land in your home you get to get together with whoever it is that wants to live the same way and get exactly what you want or at least as much as you're willing to compromise to work with other people but you will never have anything forced on you that you don't want that's what freedom really is we confuse this too in a lot of the terminology it's not that we should have freedom from government so much as freedom of government and includes the freedom to opt out as much as the freedom to create new systems or new communities this really is the better way of communicating our message as libertarians in a way that doesn't trigger people doesn't challenge people and respects that their preferences are very real and calls them directly to libertarian principles of live and let live the non-aggression principle and respect for self-ownership we have been falsely led to believe that corporations and governments are at odds with each other it is a very dangerous fallacy and you're kind of right to point out as mark twain would have said it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled we do have a significant paradigm shift that we have to make happen people are waking up they're waking up faster than ever they're waking up in the way that we know as libertarians a lot of libertarians myself included were initially thinking along the lines of we have to wake up everybody we have to get to a tipping point and a critical mass of converts who are all going to vote away the state or make it irrelevant I don't think that's true. I mean, it's not just the reality of how things work, but it's also kind of contrary to a libertarian understanding of economics. What I mean by that is specialization of labor. I know for you, Michael, for your audience, just the basic concept of specialization of labor, as I'm using it here, is that when we went from hunter-gatherers to more complex civilizations, it was made possible because somebody was able to hunt gather and farm in such a way that they were able to feed more than themselves and their immediate family labor and time was freed up for people to specialize in specific things everybody already understands the basics of it they get don't hit don't steal don't kill yes it's still bad when government does those things when people do these unethical things you're displacing the vibrant beautiful win-win relationships of capitalism with some kind of statism what we can do is build electoral coalitions to make real change happen i get that it's corrupt i get that it's not a fair system but all governments exist with the consent of the governed to some degree we can remove that consent or rather the illusion of that consent through the electoral process just look at for example how legal cannabis is now compared to 20 years ago that largely happened through referenda through popular votes we can do that politically the same way this is why localization as policy and strategy politically is the way that we bring everybody together it's not just a talking point it really is the everyone gets what they want strategy because immediately government gets more customized you look at today we have secession movements all over the country i spoke at a California Calexit conference just before the shutdown started rolling across the country we can agree to disagree on the aesthetics but come together on the ethics and say we're not going to force everybody into this system anymore 
how can you own property and then you don't? It's more that government comes up with fancy excuses to steal it from you. Taxation is theft, just by another name with a fancy excuse and a complicated system backing it up that has a huge web of propaganda around it. You're not a victim, you're a tax evader. At the local level, it's not as bad as at the national level because to some extent you can vote with your feet. Now, it's not the be-all, end-all. You have a right to secede on your own land and say, I'm not paying any property taxes here. I'm not paying any taxes to anybody. I'm going to engage in commerce with my own property by my own natural rights, and nobody can interfere with that. I wholeheartedly support that. The Dalai Lama was once asked, what's the first thing you would do if you were president? And he said, I would start calling things by their proper names. Taxation is theft. War is murder. Politicians are criminals. Just using that direct, honest language is really critical to understanding reality. Sometimes when we talk about these big terms, it's worth taking the time to define your terms in any conversation. Oftentimes, that's how you end up solving the problem. When you said capitalism, you really meant what I call this evil corporate subsidy system that is the violent warfare welfare state. And when I say capitalism, I mean this ideal of a universally nonviolent society. The Federal Reserve System is the institution behind our current fiat currency, the U.S. dollar. Fiat currency means that it is by fiat, by declaration. It's money that has value because the government says it does. That definition doesn't really capture what it actually is, and that is a system that is forced on you in order to exploit you. It has value because the government enforces that value and demands that you pay taxes in it. If you don't pay taxes in the official currency of your government, then they can take your property. Therefore, everybody has to use that currency in order to keep the government happy. It's also imposed, of course, by legal tender laws, where they actually make competing currencies illegal. Now, in the age of cryptocurrency, it's kind of impossible for them to do. They really can't enforce what they'd like to in terms of keeping cryptocurrencies illegal, which would make it impossible to compete with fiat currencies, although a lot of people have tried in different ways with varying degrees of success with silver and gold-backed currencies. Some people think that the Federal Reserve is part of the government. It's understandably confusable in that sense. A better understanding, I think, is that it is a unique public-private partnership where a lot of banks, private banks, have stake in the system around the Federal Reserve, which is able to create money out of thin air. You'll hear a lot of people describe this as printing money because that's what it was historically. Present day, obviously, most of that money is created digitally. More than even created in a central part of the system, it's created in the banks with what they call fractional reserve lending which is propped up by this central system and by the government as a way that banks are able to have a huge liability in terms of loans and loan out way more money than they actually have in reserves, hence the term fractional reserve banking. The problem with this, it's a fraud, but it's also something that has violence backing it up. The ethical position isn't to say 
well, you have to use this money or you can only use this money or this money is inherently good or this money is inherently bad, but that money should be nonviolent. That when it comes to deciding what kind of currency a society should use, it should be done by consent, not forced on people by a central authority. That doesn't mean that people can't delegate that authority. What we have here is a system where you don't even have a choice. You more or less have to use the U.S. dollar. Now, yes, practically, you can avoid that now. You can conduct as much of your business in barter, in crypto, and in metals, off the record, under the table, things like that. But you can't have a nine to five. You can't work a lot of jobs without working in the U.S. dollar system. What we want is to get the whole violence out of the system so that people have the choice to say, either I'm going to have this currency that's losing value because they're printing more of it, or this other currency like crypto that is engineered to gain value, although not quite stable enough yet in most cases to be a practical currency, but on its way there, or gold or silver-based currency, which we can have digitized or on paper very conveniently. You can print gold into tiny slivers and embed it in bills that function like paper bills. Key takeaway here is that when people in a market have a choice of what currency to use, they're not going to go with the one that is being abused, that is being used to rip them off. Because every time they create more money, if they print it or digitally create it, what that does is it increases the monetary supply. That's what inflation is, inflating the supply of money. It's not price inflation. That's a misuse of the term used to confuse people from what's really going on. Price inflation, however, is caused by actual inflation of the money supply, which means as they create more money, you have more dollars chasing the same number of goods and services in the market, prices go up, and the purchasing value of the dollars in your bank account and your back pocket lose value. Ron Paul said it's no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banks because People naturally don't want war. They don't want to pay for it. If they knew the true cost, they'd never be able to pay for it. How do governments manage to direct, misdirect huge sums of economic resources that could go to meeting human needs to instead going to killing people? They don't do this honestly and directly. They do it deceitfully by printing money out of thin air, spending it on war, using it to propagandize and deceive us to not even realize that there's this underlying system in the very money that we use continuously ripping us off. I think there are a lot of little conspiracies operating within this, of course. There are various corporate organizations that are certainly working together to take advantage of this. Lots of government bureaucrats and administrators consolidating their power, using this as the excuse. I've been saying I told you so a lot lately in covering this. Ron Paul wrote a column called The Coronavirus Hoax in March. My podcast, February 1st, had the same title, The Coronavirus Hoax. Obviously, there's something there, but not what we're being told. It's being way inflated, overreported. It is a huge misdirection of our attention. They're not even really hiding it. They're kind of rubbing our noses in it that, oh, look, oh, look how much we were able to steal from you. Six trillion dollars of liquidity. Ha ha. I'm a conspiracy realist. Conspiracies are real. The government itself is nothing more than a big conspiracy to rip you off. If you were someone running such a conspiracy, you would want to flood the conversation, and they can do this so easily now with troll farms and whatnot. 
you would want to flood the conversation with the ridiculous things, with the distractions, you know, anything to sort of throw people off or make anybody questioning the official narrative look crazy. We got to focus on winning the primary right now, and I'm going to be supporting whoever the nominee of the Libertarian Party is one way or another, really making sure that we pull together and take advantage of this opportunity that we're facing for 2020. You can donate to our campaign. You can show that we have the support for the campaign. You can follow me on social media. You can get on my email list. I encourage you all to check out thefreedomline.com. If you're listening to this right now, you've enjoyed this interview enough to make it all the way to the end. Support what Michael Halpern is doing with the show. We don't have corporate sponsorship in independent media. We rely on having an active, engaged audience in order to get our message out. Thank you for doing that. For me, for Michael, and for posterity, for the cause of freedom, thank you for listening and being a part of this. My website is thefreedomline.com, all three words, thefreedomline.com. You can get my book for free, find my YouTube channel with 80 million views from that, plug into my live show, which goes Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon Pacific. And of course, you can find kokeshforpresident.com without having to remember how to spell my funny last name. So I'm Adam Kokesh. Find me at thefreedomline.com. Thank you very much, Michael.